Hello, and thanks for listening to Clear Access, Clear Waters, the Paddlers podcast. My favourite wildlife encounter that I've ever had was in the Antarctic, in the Antarctic Peninsula, diving underneath an iceberg with a female leopard seal. I've got a bit of a hero of mine in today, and we'll jump straight into here from Steve Backshall, kayaker, explorer, and wildlife presenter of TV programmes like Deadly 60, Expedition, and Blue Planet Live. The thing that I love best about my sea kayak in terms of expeditions is that sense of absolute freedom. We chatted about all sorts, from his proudest moment as a paddler to the changes he's seeing right now in people's attitude to protecting the natural world. I hope you enjoy it. I had a cracking time. Well, thank you so much for letting us chat to you. It's a wicked, it's an honour. Um, such a fan. And I just thought we'd get straight into it because we've not got long because you're a busy man. And I thought it'd be really nice. I've heard that you've just got back from the Arctic and I've seen that you've been kayaking in the ice flows and that must just be an amazing experience. Just tell me about that, man. Over the last 10 years or so, the Arctic's become my favourite environment and it's for lots of different reasons. I, I think there's nowhere where we as a human being feel more small, more vulnerable, yeah. uh, particularly in the spring and the summer, the, the wildlife is mm. mind-blowing. I, I guess there's a tendency to think of the, the Arctic as being a dead, lifeless place, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And we've just come back from diving in Arctic waters yeah. with orca, which is to me the most exciting animal on earth, going out at night and seeing the entire sky just emblazoned with northern lights. Um, it's mesmerizing. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's somewhere that I tend to go, go back to over and over again. It's also really important because there's nowhere where our effects, our negative effects as a, as a species are more keenly felt than in the Arctic. Yeah, and, and I suppose... I'm always intrigued about this, you know, the, the the northern lights because you see it on films and you see it on, you know, does it, what does it, what does it compare like in real life to being on a, on a screen like that? So I would say 99% of the time that I've seen it, uh, it's been, it's been nice. It's been yeah. great. You just see kind of green flickering, usually towards the northern horizon. Uh, every once in a while, and it, it could be a one in a thousand thing you'll see a Northern Lights that covers the entire sky that is moving in real time, that you've got these flickering curtains of light and it's everything from the, the, the typical greens and whites to pink and purple and red. And we had this on, a, on our last trip and the entire crew was just stood there with their jaws on the floor and at the end of it uh we were all quite emotional there was, there was a few tears and everyone's hugging each does other does anyone ever get bored of it is there anyone who's got oh, I've, I've seen this before surely not it sounds so majestic so like, magical like i say a lot of the time with the northern lights first of all it's very down to how clear the sky is uh, if you've got a lot of cloud if there's any light pollution it can be you know nice other times it is one of the greatest spectacles on the planet and did you get to paddle when you're out there? Did you? Did, of did course. Yeah. Okay. So tell me because it must be like <laughs> I always see these massive icebergs and things, and I wonder what it would be like to go anywhere near one of them. Because again, that I think you said about that sense of smallness, that awe. You know, that's what I love nature for myself. That feeling of smallness and perspective on actually who we are in this universe. And I think kayaking is an amazing, canoeing is an amazing way of feeling that. And I, I wonder what that was like. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, one of my favourite expeditions that I've ever done was with Helen, my wife. And we went uh, sea kayaking down a fjord in Alaska. At the base of that are two huge glaciers which are carving all the time. So if you sit in front of it long enough, you will see masses of ice falling off the thing. And all the way up as you're paddling up the fjord, you're going past icebergs that are the size of office blocks. The thing that I love 
best about my sea kayak in terms of expeditions is that sense of absolute freedom. You know, you can put in it enough stuff to be self-sufficient for at least a couple of weeks and you can choose exactly where you go. You can choose exactly which beach you're going to pull up on, exactly where you're going to camp that night. Uh, it is a sensational way of encountering wildlife. You know, there are very, very few ways that have less disturbance and the animals it just tend to totally ignore. Yeah. I've had orcas paddling past me so close that I could just reach out and touch them. Humpback whales likewise, because they don't see you as being any kind of a threat. They might see you as interesting or intriguing, yeah. but it's not something that they're frightened by. There's no engine noise. Uh, and to me, it is the perfect method of expedition travel. And was there all the sort of, you know, kind of, you know, those flutings, you know, when it's all windswept and are just those shapes and the blue colours and seeing under, underneath the water and everything that must be. It, it really is. Yeah. I mean, you've completely hit the nail on the head. I mean, I'm I, just imagining it here, you know, I, I'm just seeing you've it You've got to pictures, do it. You know, Seriously, so, yeah. you've got to do it. it. It's just the the absolute best. Mm. That that deep, deep blue that you get from ancient glacial ice, because, you know, some of it can be in Greenland, for example, some of the paddling we've done are, are past icebergs where the ice is 100,000 years old. Wow. It fell as snow, you know, way back during the last ice age, got compressed over deep time, and it is bullet hard. Yeah. And this mesmerizing blue, when you get up close to it, uh, and like you say, those flutings, the way that it's carved by movements of the wind and the waves. And it, yeah, there are a few more beautiful things in the world. It, it's also, it can be terrifying because yeah. it's a dynamic. Because it was hanging, is it overhanging bits and is it creaking Absolutely, and groaning yeah, yeah. and all that sort of thing? It can be. You, you hear those sounds of the thing just breaking and cracking and falling apart and they can just completely collapse they're dangerous places to be near but at the same time they really draw you in i'd secretly wish for one to collapse and kind of surf the wave out as it kind of <laughs> went past me is that is that possible or I, not? I, I think well we had uh, when i was doing this trip with helen we had uh, some massive uh, bergs fall off the, the the toe of the carving glacier in front of us and you get a big old wave coming off it yeah. and it, it kind of particularly as the two of us were on our own yeah. and a very long way away from anywhere else you, you do yeah, you it certainly sets your heart rate up yeah, yeah, yeah. but as long as you keep a sensible distance back then you're you're you know you're kind of okay if you were close to one of those really big bergs yeah. and it rolled or it cracked or it fell apart you wouldn't last two seconds uh, well at least you go quickly i guess but. <laughs> yeah, that's true it's spectacular way and have you ever have you ever dived underneath them as well have you ever because that's when you yeah. see again you see shots like that it just looks i would think that must be just the most kind of scary but beautiful haunting it just looks like a cathedral kind yeah, yeah. of space style i don't know considering even. you have done this you, you've actually got a i've got pretty... a good imagination what can i say you know <laughs> yeah. i'm like I'm, i love this stuff you know I, I, it's one of the things i really enjoy the idea of doing one day perhaps but yeah well i i think arguably my favorite wildlife encounter that i've ever had was in the antarctic in the antarctic peninsula diving underneath an iceberg with a female leopard seal oh, yeah. and having her coming up flashing her teeth into the camera yeah. you know sort of nibbling around our fins uh, was both very intimidating yeah, but they're at quite the same time. scary looking aren't they? really scary like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of almost reptilian yeah in, yeah, in, yeah. In they've form. got that, that dark look on their eyes. yeah yeah they have and it's you know it's an animal that, that feeds on on penguins and seals and and it certainly you know looked like it could have taken a nasty yeah, chunk, yeah, chunk yeah. out of us but but yeah being alongside the iceberg at the same time and you see that kind of glittering almost like diamond dust when your torch hits the ice um it's unbelievably beautiful mm. oh man <sighs> yeah we recorded this interview just before steve did his annual fundraising event for the world land trust and he talked a little bit about that organization. So I, I've been a patron of the World Land Trust for a few years now, and I I love what they do. It's it's a very simple concept. 
which is that we buy forest. Yeah, we, we buy forest. That's what I want to do, and we retire it. Yeah. So you know, normally the the normal way we go about it is that we will buy forest somewhere where it is up for sale but threatened. Mm. And if it doesn't go to us, it's going to go to to loggers. It's going to go to uh, ore mining yeah. concessions, and we buy it and we take care of it. And that might be as simple as uh, sequestering it to an existing national park. It could be returning it to uh, local stewardship, returning it to a, a local NGO, and. Uh, my hairs are that, standing up. This is what this is what we need to do, right? It's on a massive on scale. On a massive scale, you, we, you know, need I think buy, well, we, we need to buy. We need to buy forest. Yeah. We need to stop it being cut down for so many different reasons. You know, it is one of the most efficient offsetters of yeah, our, yeah. our carbon emissions, mm. and the most efficient ways that we can prevent human-induced climate change. Mm. But even if you even if you're a complete climate science denier, even yeah. if you have no interest in any of that stuff. The, the possibility for protecting biodiversity mm. and giving animals a home and yeah. protecting trees is unparalleled and unrivaled. Mm. And as someone who's had the great opportunity of spending huge amounts of time in tropical rainforest, mm. living up individual trees and finding that one tree, mm. just one tree that can be several hundred years old, can be harboring hundreds if not thousands of different species. Yeah, yeah. And you look at that one tree and think it would be the world's greatest tragedy if this one tree was mm. ever to be cut down. And we know that species loss is happening so rapidly that you know Absolutely. you might have seen something that might not be there the next time. Yeah, That's crazy. totally. You've completely hit the nail on the head. And we're lo- losing not that one tree, mm. but tens of thousands of those mm. trees every single yeah, yeah, day. Yeah. It's, it's an unimaginable tragedy. And until we can get the systemic change that we need, until we can start, you know, shaking our politicians and our big business leaders yeah. and just saying, this has got to stop or at least to slow down yeah. until well, that it has can to happen. stop. Let's not be about the bush. We have to stop it. You yes, know? We, it, we it needs to slow down really quickly <laughs> to but, a stop. Yeah. But until we can do that, on a big scale, then people like you and mm. I can personally make a difference by yeah. just buying forest. Yeah, yeah. If you go to the right parts of the world, you can get an acre for a hundred quid. Wow. And that's a lot. That is a lot of rainforest. Yeah. So events like this, this one wild night that we're running at the RGS, you know, we're looking at buying hundreds of acres mm. of rainforest, of Ecuadorian cloud forest and protecting it for all time. It will never yeah. be cut down. Wow. And I love the the, th- the things that I really switch on to best in conservation are pragmatism. Yeah. They're things where you can tell people that they personally are making a difference. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's important. I think it's important yeah. that... Makes particularly people feel good, right? Makes people feel good. They're in makes the game. Feel, they're makes, doing they're something. In the game. They are empowered. They have... Uh, they have a voice, they have an ability to make a difference themselves. And I, yeah. I think that's really important. We need like a hair monitor, arm hair monitor, my hairs on my neck, standing <laughs> up, sitting down, standing up. It's amazing because, you know, th- this is it. You know, I, I remember just just recently watching the fires in, in and the Amazon and some of these fires are set by poor people, you know, who need a place to live and a, a land to earn some money. And it's actually, why should we be telling them not to do that you know they've got a right to live but actually then this sort of idea is amazing because we can actually say look this is valuable we will you know people are willing to pay we're you know giving it and so for me this world land trust that sounds just fantastic we need yeah we need to go crazy at it yeah absolutely and and that whole local people thing is is very important as well because yes there are an awful lot of uh, of local people who who, for whom their land is a resource Mm. and for whom you know cutting it down to make way for for a, a beef farm seems like a good idea 
but there's an awful lot of other local people who would much rather keep mm. their land in yeah, the condition that it's in you know and given that opportunity given the the positive economics that can you know result from simple purchase of land that's the way that they would like to go you know it, it's it's no secret that having good forests results in having good water courses mm. it results in a general health of the environment and you know i do a lot of work in for example borneo and Borneo has incredibly poor sandy soils. Mm. You cut away the forest to make way yeah, for a plantation, yeah. and within a couple of decades, it is a desert. Yeah. And if you can prevent that, then it's a winner for everyone. I thought it'd be cool because you're obviously a well known now as a, a kayaker. People, you've probably brought kayaking to mainstream audience, you know, expedition down the rivers and stuff, you know, primetime TV and a conservationist and a passionate environmentalist as well. I was wondering what your proudest moment in kayaking is and what your proudest moment in environmentalism or conservation is. Oh, wow. That's an amazing I know question. That's a hard question how, but... how, how long have you got? Go on. Just give us a, just give us a little one. <laughs> okay. Um, the first thing that springs to mind is in, in paddling. I think my proudest moment in paddling was, uh, we did an expedition at the end of last year in Bhutan yeah. and it was, uh, the, an attempt to make the first running of a river called the Chamkachu, which had never been run before. And on the end of the third day, I got caught in a hole yeah. uh, that I couldn't get out of. Yeah. And I was stuck in it for about four and a half minutes. That's a long time, right? Because every time. second in a big beat down is yeah. like, feels like five, I guess. It, yeah, that's exactly right. And I got to the point where I realized that I couldn't get out of it myself. So I'd come out of the boat and I expected to be spat out. And it didn't happen. It just yeah. it just kept me in, um, and I it was freezing, freezing cold. I completely ran out of all energy. I mm. didn't have anything to get out of it myself, and I realised that I was drowning. Yeah. And it's a uh, a powerful and unsettling moment. And four and a half minutes is a long time. Yeah. You know, I've I've had other close calls in my past and they've been over in a millisecond yeah so this one was a bit longer this one was, this one was long enough yeah, okay. to kind of think oh this is it yeah, this yeah. is how i go I'm, yeah. I'm actually drowning here and um I, I don't know if you know her but my uh, i do you know sal yeah do yeah. You? yeah yeah she's super cool, she though. is an amazing person you know she is one of my favorite people in the world she was out safety kayaker she'd already gone down the rapids she came back upstream i'm not really yeah. quite sure how she managed to do it well, got motivated, me. i guess you know be motivated for your chums right when yeah you're out there. yeah she's she's super motivated and you know despite the fact that she is one of the the nicest people that you will ever met meet she's also she's also made out of an iron bar yeah. she is nails she got a line to me she got me out and uh, you know it was brutal i'd taken a real beating mm. i partially separated my shoulder obviously psychologically i was wrecked but if i pulled out then yeah. the expedition came to an end and we you know we'd only gone a couple of days into it we had lots more to mm. go and it was a real battle that night was was probably the most emotionally low i've ever been yeah, on an expedition wow. and the next morning i managed with you know the support of all my friends particularly people like sal and, and james bebbington yeah, who i'm yeah. sure you also yeah. know uh, to get back in the kayak and carry on paddling and carry on with the rest of the expedition and i i think it's that managing to conquer you know all my demons and everything inside of me just telling me to get on the plane home mm. that I consider my proudest moment yeah. in paddling um, and you know we had 
even though I nearly died, mm. I still look at that expedition as being one of the best I've ever done and one of the, the most enjoyable. And you know, the best thing about it was coming to the end and we went up to uh, to put up a string of prayer flags mm. to, you know, say thanks for all the amazing things that we'd seen and to, to you know, kind of pay homage to friends and that we'd lost. And for being alive, I guess, yeah. And for, for being <laughs> alive. And we looked on down the rest of the river and there was at least 60 miles more to go. Yeah. And we'd done and accomplished and achieved everything we needed to do but there is a whole other river there yeah, yeah. for someone else to go back and do and you know over the whole course of this year we, we've seen so much that still is rich and ripe for exploration and I, I love that I love that thought that you know my kids other people's kids young people who are just like I was when they were youngsters looking for their big adventure in life yeah. have got plenty of opportunities out there yeah. left to do then the other question was was conservation how, your proudest moment conservation because i mean you've been, you know had a lifetime in this right you started from back in the day you know I, I read up that you started as a travel writer effectively and got into it from this way but you know you've you've seen so much stuff um i know that's a hard question but you know you must have something that pops out i do i have lots i have lots and lots of personal high points but i think that for me the biggest high point in conservation has been this year the upswell in young activism in environmentalism yeah uh, which i have not seen before in my life seeing you know not just hundreds but tens of thousands of young people deciding that the most important thing in the world that the thing that they want to put their time and effort and energy into is making our planet a better place and you know to to many of the people out there who are not in the conservation world, it's all about Greta. Yeah. It's absolutely not. Yeah. There are thousands and thousands of Gretas right here in this country. Yeah. Young people who have just unimaginable passion and ambition. Mm. They are unstoppable. Mm. I, I find them, you know, humbling and intimidating yeah. sometimes to be around uh, and you know quite yeah, they've often got they, questions to answer aren't they you know got, they, they want qu they want answers yeah. and a, a lot of them are incredibly erudite and you know they they have they've got all the facts at their disposal you furnish them with these facts i guess and you've given them the sort of the this you've you've, you've stepped given them this this pathway you showed them this pathway right? well i i would i Par partially come on <laughs> <laughs> who knows yeah. i i i do know though that that they are the big hope. And I, I honestly believe that we're going to look back in 20 years' time and we're going to see right now as being as important as many of the great civil rights movements of the past. This is going to be seen as a time when young people stood up and started shouting about the world's problems and brought it to, to a global stage. You know, I've been making programs on climate change for 20 years and saying exactly the same crap over and over and over again. And nobody has listened. And now, you know, all of a sudden people are starting to pay attention and it's down to the youngsters. And that, to me, is is probably the the proudest and most exciting thing in my life in conservation. Because yeah. you feel like you've stimulated this, and, and you've been I, kind of <laughs> or part of it. I suppose that's the. the... I, I, I would love to to yeah. you know be involved in it. Yeah. I'd love to to you know ride on the tide of this yeah. this new excitement. I don't want to claim any kind of no. part of it myself. Um, and uh, you know, I I meet probably every week. A couple of young people that I think, wow, I have wasted my life. 
Wow. No, it sounds, that's really nice. And I, I'm, I'm really heartened actually to hear you talking about this kind of, this mobilization, this kind of fact that it's a, a justice issue, you know, this is for the future. This, and, and young people are doing it. I think also, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a young person anymore, but is it, you know, this is also huge across the generations. You know, we're getting old people are kind of saying, look, we need to do this for the kids. We're getting grannies and granddads, you know, they're like, they're, they're, their passion is, is is being released now. I think we get that sense, and, and you must meet do you, you must meet adults as well who are in, totally on the case here as well. Yeah, I do, and but almost all of them are coming at it from the same perspective. Yeah. and having just become a dad myself, all of a sudden that makes total sense. Mm. You know, everything about big becoming a parent is a massive cliche, mm. um, <laughs> but the the biggest cliche of all is is that all of a sudden it is all about your kids yeah. you know every selfish thing that i've ever done in my life up until now is completely irrelevant it's all about logan and his future yeah, yeah. and i see increasingly that from all of the other parents around me saying my kids want this my yeah. kids are passionate about this yeah. and uh, you know that's that's fantastic isn't it yeah. and i think there's a sort of edge to it as well isn't there because it's like thinking what are these kids going to ask us in the future what they're going to say what did you do what did you do dad what did you do mum when when we knew about this and yeah and yeah what, what were you doing you know where were you at and you know i i think um you know going a little bit off topic but i, I think that's one of the reasons why there is so much bad press it makes me so angry there, there are a few things that drive me more insane than uh, you know particularly the, the daily mail and the daily express raging against people like greta like our own versions of greta that we have right here in this country you know railing about against them for being too middle class yeah. railing against them for, for all kinds of other things i think personally it's one of those things where we we recognise what we've done wrong, but we don't like to be told it. You know, it, it makes you feel bad, doesn't it, yeah. to be to be told that you've been asleep at the wheel, and people don't want to hear it. And so, what do you do? You undermine the the, the voice. Yeah. You try and do whatever you can to to take away their power. Yeah. Or you say, yeah, fair enough. Let's let's do something new. Let's change this now. And I think that that's an incredible. For me, this is the times we're in. Incredible times, and I I think that's brings me nicely now because. This Clear Access, Clear Waters campaign that British Canoeing have got on seems to be right at the right time. You know, we've got a really sensible, sound case to have better access to our waters. And I, I thought to myself, you know, Steve, you've been advocating, you know, you've been on the case with this. And it'd be like, why did you get involved? What drew you to this campaign? Canoeing, uh, kayaking, the water and all water sports have given me so much over the years. And I recognize the power of what going out for a paddle can do. And it's, it's so difficult to sell that simple message, isn't it? You know, the, the, the best and easiest way of doing it is to take a bunch of kids out on the water and, and see, see the fire in their eyes. Take someone out to surf the first wave. You know, yeah. there, there, is, there is almost no one who isn't going to come back at the end of it battered and bruised and just like, yeah. get me back in there yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. And we have an awful lot of issues and problems facing uh, our populace as a whole, but particularly our young people. And uh, it's so difficult for an old fart like me to talk about any of them. But, um, you know, I know for an absolute fact that getting out in nature as a whole, getting out in the open air is is a powerful thing. It's yeah. a powerful thing for our mental health. It's a yeah. powerful thing for our physical well-being. Um, but I have myself always found 
that when you add the element of water, yeah. it's more powerful. Mm. If I'm feeling a bit blue, I go out for a paddle on the river, come rain or shine, it can be hammering down with rain, and I come back I love it end, when it's raining. Yeah, so do, so do I. And, and that cloud has lifted. Um, and I know individual people who have managed to battle their their demons in the form of, of mental health problems and depression mm. through getting out into wild places mm. it's it's so simple it's potentially free and it offers a a panacea for mm. so many of our, our issues and our problems not for everyone you know i've had a lot of people th throw this back at me saying you saying that canoeing can cure depression that's rubbish of course i'm not saying that but it can it can offer so much to so many people, and you know it should be free. We have we have a vast network of waterways here in this country, of which something like four percent is yeah. available to, That's to everyone. That's a shocking figure, isn't it? When isn't people, it? When you say that to nuts. people, people kind of go, "What, really?" And it and you know I'm incredibly lucky. I live on the Thames, and the the Upper Thames and the the section of the Thames that I paddle every single day. It's fine, yeah. you know. We have we have no problems, yeah. but there's an awful lot of the country where that's not the case, and that is wrong. Because for me, my theory about canoeing and kayaking, especially, is that because you're sat down or you're lower down, you have this sort of you're scaled. You're about half the size. You have this different perspective, you know, almost like a childlike perspective of, of size. So when you look up at an iceberg or a tree or even like a bush, you know, like a you know big old you know, blackberry bush hanging over the the, the side of the canal. It's like twice as big as it would be if you were stood next to it. And for me, that sense of awe, for some reason, grounds me. And I think that's one of the reasons why these are healthy places, because it shows you your place at the, sm at the same time as feeling small. You also feel like big because you're like, out there, you're surviving, you know, in this potentially dangerous place. You know, that's what I think is so empowering and healthy about paddle sports. I, I think also there's, there is at its simplest core there is a rhythm and a volume to paddle sports that is perfect for experiencing an environment so I, I do a lot of other kind of outdoor sports as well cycling it's too fast yeah man. you go whipping through an environment way too quick uh running most of the time you're too centered in your own head burst your ankle or something yeah <laughs> rowing which yeah. my my wife and my best friends do you're facing the wrong way yeah, yeah. you know you do get out. to see it going off in the back well, <laughs> yeah I, suppose, but yeah. I, I i actually i had a, a seminal moment when i took out one of my best friends who was a rower and i took him out paddling for the first time facing forwards oh. and uh within three minutes of the paddle i went oh kingfisher over there and he went what yeah i said he said i've never seen one before yeah. he's been paddling that stretch of river in a yeah. rowboat since he was eight and he'd never seen a kingfisher wow. first time out through and when you see a when kingfisher, you're facing forwards you can't even believe that anything like that exists eh? so blue that incredible speed oh, yes, but yeah, there's one course. living in nottingham and i see it once in a while and every go. time you're like wow and they've seen it for the first time facing forwards yeah so, so paddle sports even you know even if i'm going out in a sprint boat even if i'm going out you know for, for a k1 paddle session I still feel at the end of it like I've had a nature experience. Mm, yeah, yeah. And there are very few other sports where I where I get that. Yeah. And do you, just out of interest, you know, do you kind of train? You know, do you go out and paddle sort of serious, push yourself? I mean, I guess you do some easy stuff, but do you go out sometimes like out to go and push yourself hard? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it depends What's on the what kind of... What's a standard session you might do if you oh, get the chance? God, or, don't or ask or do you me just that. do whatever? You, you, you can't have a... a 
gold medal winning oh, Olympian asking me no. what my training session no. is. This is going to be oh, humiliating. Okay. No. You don't have to share it. No. It does. It does depend on what I've got coming up. So quite often I'll have an expedition coming up where we're going to be doing long days. So you know, it depends what time I've got. If I've if I've got. 45 minutes available I can't go out and do a long endurance session but what I could do is go out and do a sort of you know fartlek session uh, you know something where I've got some intensive sprints built into some uh, some kind of like gliding sessions yeah. working on uh, technique uh, and I can completely exhaust myself in 45 yeah, minutes yeah, if I need yeah, to yeah. Um, but then it, you know if I've got a long expedition coming up really it's about the hours it's about making sure that you, you know your body is used to yeah, yeah. doing hour after hour without stopping and so i just try and make my sessions as long and and stable as i can and do you go for long distances on the stretch do you just go of course just, yeah of so course you've got a sort of voyage a bit of a trip out there. yeah yeah so i've done the um done the dw three times yeah and it terrifies me i know i'm gonna have to do you that have point, but you i don't want to have to really do don't it want to. it's, it's, it's really <laughs> do you know what there's something that's particularly british about the dw I, I love the kind of eccentricity of it i love the fact that you're doing this race which has global acclaim you know I've mm. spoken to people all over the world who've gone paddlers all over the world yeah. who said oh yeah it, it, that's where you've got that that race isn't it that that, hun- that hundred miles with all of those locks and things that sounds great people know about it mm. in any country that paddles so you've got to do it yeah but I love the fact that you're going out and doing something which is pretty hardcore yeah. um, and you do it paddling the nicest stretch of the river through the dead of night when you can't see anything oh. and there's you know there's, there's the kingfishers no, are asleep <laughs> yeah I mean until you get to the actual end there's no kind of real support or sort of yeah, like yeah. fanfare or anything you yeah. just do it on just your own terms out, for yeah. you um, and it can be one of the most incredible experiences you'll ever have it I mean it's horrible there, there are times when you know you, you basically sitting in a puddle of your own urine oh. uh, uh, you know, Fun with times. with chafing and uh, just feeling like you know worst nappy rash in human history, yeah. but getting to the end has always been a really special thing for me. And doing it with with my wife, doing it with Helen, was the the best race I've, I've ever had. Yeah, that sounds like a nice story. But I can imagine it being actually quite difficult for a relationship to to do so much canoeing <laughs> in one time. There together. were moments. There were yeah. moments. There, there were particularly moments coming towards the end of uh, of the race where Helen, with her Olympian mentality, was kind of like. Go faster! Yeah. We need to be averaging nine miles an hour. And I'm kind of going, we're gonna get there. We'll be fine, honestly. You know, but but you know, her pushing us meant that we actually won the the mixed section yeah, of, of the race, which we certainly it. wouldn't have done if we'd gone yeah. on my time scale. So yeah. you know, that's what the Olympian mentality yeah, achieves. Yeah. Wow. I suppose I'm interested as well because you've obviously been out and around in Britain canoeing, kayaking. I always say canoeing and kayaking. You know, you know what I mean. That, that, you know that's what fine. We'll go. We'll go with canoeing. Um, but have you ever had like issues with access? Have you ever struggled and thought this isn't right? You know, this isn't this isn't how it's supposed to be yourself. You know, has it been like that? Yeah, I mean, we. I, I've had a. I, I don't want to kind of like zero in too much on the the angling fishing mm. community. We've already had an episode, and we're kind of seeing this increasingly. This is dissolving. We've got you know kayak fishing. You know, people are going out on their kayaks to go fishing. Or yeah, is- and and you know, I I have seen both here and in this country and overseas as well how fishermen can be terrific custodians of mm. of um of all of our water environments both marine and freshwater um but i've had some very negative interactions with mm. with fishermen i've been phys- not physically who, know who you were do you know i'll say yeah that's steve Batchel. i don't think I'll it pipe makes, down i don't think it makes any difference you, you know i i've i've been physically threatened on on mm. more than one occasion um I, i've had some and you're not a black so, belt or something i am, I am a black belt say, look guys belt. let's talk about this peacefully but, but i'm a black belt in a boat well they're on <laughs> well they're on the bank throwing beer cans at me you know? 
know, it's it's yeah. um it, it's a tough one. And you know, Helen also has has been abused at, in a GB boat after the 2012 Olympics when mm. she brought home, as you did, mm. a gold medal for our nation. Mm. She, you know, has been, you know, really unpleasantly abused by mm. by by fishermen. But it doesn't need to be like this, right? It doesn't need to be like this. It really doesn't. We should be able to coexist alongside each other, uh, you know, in in a, in a in a in a good way. And this is the idea of the stewardship to me. This is what's the the super selling point right now. People are getting interested in looking after our planet, you know, looking after our world. David Attenborough effect, all that stuff, you know, getting paddlers out onto the rivers, cleaning them up, looking out valuing this environment surely surely this is now an idea we should get clear access absolutely clear waters and you know what though you know all of this cuts both ways so if we are going to have better even better complete access to our rivers then we need paddlers who understand what that means paddlers yeah. who understand that it is now in their hands to make sure that those waterways are in the best possible condition they can be in and if there is a particular waterway that at a certain time of year it should not be in, in access because of certain you know reasons for fishing hatcheries or whatever then then you know it's down to us to make sure that we don't do them yeah. you know one of my other sports is is climbing yeah. and in climbing there are certain cliffs that at certain times of year because of you know nesting restrictions you stay away from mm. and some people don't listen to it yeah. some people you know don't listen to those rules it's up to us to make sure that we regulate ourselves as a group yeah. but we need to have the waterways open for that to even yeah, yeah. begin to be possible steve if you had one wish that i could grant you to get clear access clear waters to achieve this goal how would you go about that what would that be so what i would do pure and simple is to get a bunch of important people in government and I would take them out on their local patch on one of their local waterways and I'd just take them for a paddle. I would take them to see the wildlife they don't even know exists, even in the middle of an inner city area. I would get them to appreciate the waterways that they probably don't even know are there and get them to come away at the end of it, you know, a little bit red in the face from a bracing breeze and... <laughs> <laughs> and having experienced the things that we've been lucky enough to, to see every single day of our lives. And at the end of it, they would want to find the way to protecting those places themselves. I got started in paddling through the scouts mm. when I was probably 11, 11 years old. Me it's, too, man. Really? Did you? Yeah, really? yeah. So I started the scouts. Big shout out to the scouts. Big shout my out scout to leaders scouting. changed my life. Absolutely. They gave me this opportunity and it, it changed my life. And I saw that on your thing and I was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Isn't it amazing though that both of us got, yeah. got started in paddling so through people, scouts? So many people. And it's it's taken you to, to the Olympics and, you know, world championships. Yeah. It's taken taken me all around the world. And so scouting, you know, has a lot to answer for in a very positive way. But if we are going to be getting kids into paddle sports through scouting, then almost before you learn how to roll, mm. you need to learn that you come away with the river being cleaner yeah, yeah, from yeah. you being there than than before it was mm. you know if you are picking up rubbish or making sure that you're at least taking away your own stuff with you making sure that you're not eroding particular banks getting in and out of the water all of those things should be absolutely intrinsic to your understanding yeah. of learning how to paddle in the first place yeah and that's it isn't it it's about responsibility it's like power responsibility we've got to we've got to claim some of that power we've got to claim some of the responsibility i, I believe as a, as a community and as as a society even you know i'm going to say that right now <laughs> You started in the Scouts, yes, and you're you're connected. You're you're a supporter of the Scouts and the Cubs, and I suppose to me this is a really amazing side of it because I guess I get the impression that it's it's a 
more difficult thing to do now. When I was younger, my scout leaders were absolutely fearless and courageous just to get us out there and kind of, you know, let this chaos out into the open um, and on all these crazy kids running around the place. And it, it, it's tougher now, but my sense is that it's more and more important now to get people involved in scouts, get them involved in anything that gets them out into the countryside, out into the wild to appreciate nature. You're obviously really into that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, well, I'm, I'm a scouting ambassador mm. and I, I think we need to get you on board as well, yeah. for sure. Um, I, I think that there are there are uh, several different things at play here. One of one of those is that scouting is more popular now than it has ever been throughout its history. Wow, that's so cool. I'm we, glad to hear that. We have here in the UK alone around 50,000 young people on waiting lists to get oh, into the scouts. So that's the thing. So a massive shout out to anyone out there who feels that they may have anything to offer, any adults who feel that by volunteering for scouting, they you know could potentially have, have a role to play please, please, please don't think about it for a second more. Mm. Get down to your local scouts and find out what you can do because we need volunteers. And, you know, I, I have to say a huge thank you to everybody who volunteers already because, you know, there's two people sat at this table mm. who've, you know, done big things in the yeah. life. My crewmate Tim started got, as scouts. Did, his, did mom, really? his mom his mom, was a scout leader, you know. There so you go. come on, this is it. You know, there you go. Is... So, so the things that we have both, you know, gone on to do with a springboard of scouting is massive. And, all the opportunity that it offers to young people is so, so important. It can mm. solve so many of the problems that young people have. So if you're even thinking about it for a millisecond, get into volunteering for the Scouts. We need you. We desperately need you. You can change young people's lives. So absolutely get out there and do it. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah, let's get it on. I think uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear about the Scouts is kind of growing. It's got this kind of energy to it. I would like to also ask you a little bit about how you got started in this road because I, I thought you must be a, a scientist and a, a conservation scientist but then I found out actually you're a writer and that yeah. you've written books and, and <laughs> yeah. I was like wow that's you know this is amazing I don't know how many people know that maybe that's common knowledge but I was like this guy you know he's got something about him man he knows a lot of stuff he's on the case on all sorts of areas and I thought that was super cool that you started off in writing is yeah, yeah. your passion well the, the, the science thing has always been a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder because mm. I was terrible at school at science in fact I, I still am really yeah. bad at science my my maths is appalling um and it's only a certain sort of science isn't it though math stuff is a part no, of it, no right? no yeah. god you need you need maths for all science yeah. as, well, yes, as i've learned as i've i've gone yeah. so i've gone back now mm. uh, i went to the open university to do my science degree i've just, I've just finished the open university degree as well amazing how about yeah, that yeah. What, what was what was yours I did in psychology so. amazing yeah so i did biology yeah and i've just handed in my master's thesis for, for my msc with uh, with deal, canterbury christchurch yeah. uh, university hardest thing i've ever done but by far as someone who doesn't have a scientific brain to to get my head around you know everything that you need i've got a whole chapter of my thesis on yeah. statistics yeah. which I just don't get mm. I don't understand at all but it was it was really important to me to be in this realm and to know what I'm talking about you know I, I think that it's well, you know really what important you're talking about but to have a certificate that says you know well, what you're talking about or is it even more it's, than that it's, I, I, I think there's an awful lot of people that are in my business who are mostly bluster okay. or who are you know repeating a, a script that's been written for them by someone else I'm I'm not in that 
yeah, that yeah. kind of privileged position. I, I feel like I have to have that knowledge at yeah. my hand. And I, I need to be able to, one of, one of the most important things in my job is just being able to take a scientific paper yeah. and figure out what it's saying yeah. and do that quickly and yeah, be able yeah. to, you know, replay that information in a way that is is accurate. Yeah. And to do that, you need to have a, a, a basis in yeah, science. Yeah. So I went back to university and, uh, you know, as I say, I've just, just finished my uh, my MSc. But no, my, my grounding is in, in your thesis. It's about 38,000. Yeah, credit. Big time, good <laughs> Yeah, lots of pictures though. <laughs> well, lots, yeah. lots of nice pictures. Yeah, I, I think that that has been really important for me. But like you say, I started off in writing and writing is, that's probably the thing that I'm good at. Yeah. So, you know, I take less kind of enjoyment from that because it's, it's not so much of a challenge. The, mm. the science side of things was so hard that mm. finishing it has been, yeah, really special. And do you think this is one of the things that I'm interested in? I think we're in this era now where we're kind of being asked to speak out. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of things going on in the world, you know, particularly with the environment. And I sort of feel quite strongly that it's important to be informed, but it's important to recognise that you don't have to have perfect knowledge and perfect information to be able to speak out. I think for me, it's one of the things that silences a lot of people. They may be concerned about the environment because they don't know how many parts per million of CO2 we have in the air or, you know, how much the emissions have gone up or down in one area or one country. They feel like if they say something, someone's going to say, well, tell me about what you're doing or what do you know? I think it's really strong to say, I want to speak out even if I don't know the perfect because there's always going to be someone who knows more. You know, there's going to be someone who's got the, the PhDs and the, you know, or the professors but you have to still speak out. We have to still speak out. Yeah, that that's that is totally true. I, I think though that it, it is very important that you know we do have a, a lot of voices with with credibility as well. Mm. You know, I I find that one of the most frustrating things is the fact that there is there is still now even in in television news a need to provide balance whenever we're talking about mm. climate science so you have someone who's talking about the science the way mm. things are and the facts and to balance them out you've got some nut job who thinks that lots of co2 is a good thing because it's going to make all the trees grow yeah. and I, I think that you know it's very very important that the people who are who are speaking out really have got the credibility they need you know because they have to be able to answer the right questions or or else they are going to be ridiculed yeah, and they yeah. are going to be focused on by those right-wing think tanks that are just mm. trying to disseminate nonsense to create confusion yeah. to allow this you know the status Tragedy. quo to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to be maintained and that that just cannot continue you know the overwhelming consensus from this, I, I mean i can't believe that i have to say it in those terms i have to say the overwhelming consensus from the scientific community is that this mm. is anthropogenic climate change is a thing as opposed to listen everyone yeah. this is how it is yeah, yeah. okay and unfortunately when you get into science you have to watch what you say you have to qualify everything you say yeah. people on the other side don't they can just say whatever the hell they mm. want yeah <sighs> yeah it's it's fascinating it's so good to hear that you you know you've got this you know, you're backing it up and this is the authenticity and passion that we need to release, isn't it, into the world. And I think to myself now, I'm just thinking, who are your, who's one of your heroes in this area? You know, one of, if you kind of pick one, again, one person, I know it's a bad, cruel thing to do. One person who kind of brought you into this place and got you to this place. Well, it, that that's, that's really tricky because I'm going to, I mean, I know that you know who I'm going to say. Yeah. Go, go on. on. No, go on. I'll wait for you. Well, it's Sir David. Yeah. Uh, and I, 
you know, I wish I could come up with a more creative answer. Yeah, no, no. Well, that was <laughs> going to be my final question. I was going to ask you, and I said, you know, who would you be more psyched to receive a Christmas card from? Sir David Attenborough or Chris Packham? I know you I, must know I both got, of those guys. I got a letter from Sir David two days oh. ago. It is going on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that he is a remarkable man for so many different re- reasons. And, you know, everybody knows all of this. But, you know, I've been lucky enough to meet him on, on many occasions. He is someone who, he has the ability to hold a room like no one I've ever seen before. He could read the phone book and a, a room of a thousand people would mm. sit there in utter silence, even if they're desperate for a wee, holding it because you just want to listen to every word. He is he is a very, very special storyteller. And we're very lucky that he decided to tell his stories in the area of, of natural sciences well steve i consider myself very lucky to have been here today to get a chance to speak to you i know you're a man on a mission you've got all sorts to do and uh, i just want to say thank you it's humbling it's inspiring i'm buzzing the work has got to continue right thank you so much mate it's been an absolute pre- uh, privilege talking to you i really enjoyed chatting to steve backshaw and thanks steve for your time really appreciate it if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thanks for being here. We've got listeners now in 17 countries, and I'd love it if you could listen to our back episodes and give us a review. This has been Clear Access, Clear Waters, the Paddlers podcast. And from me, Etienne Stott, thank you for listening. Cheerio for now.